and welcome to the show. Um, you, there's no Kyan Wolf today. If you've been listening to the station and you've heard what we call continuity, which is when she comes on and tells you about the weather and things like that, you probably know why she's not here because she's got a really bad cold. And then Teresa Kramer, who was supposed to be on the nose today, she's got a really bad cold or something. So only the hardiest uh, are here with us today. Uh, James Hanley from Trinity, Trinity Cine Studio is here. Irene Papoulis uh, from Trinity College, where she's a professor, is here subbing for Teresa Kramer. At some point, Kate Russian, the poet, is going to come bursting through the door. Uh, so it's a, we're a little, I don't know, we're at, we're at sixes and sevens here on the nose today, but that's not a bad, uh, necessarily a bad situation. So um, let me uh, tell you what we're going to do here today. So... I sound like I don't know, right? But I really do, actually. So uh, a term kind of came up this week. It's called prayer shaming. Um, and it, it refers to the practice of, uh, of the way public figures, especially political leaders, react in cases of mass shootings. Uh, and the argument is made um, that uh, conservatives, particularly conservative, conservatives running for president, uh, tend to uh, offer their, their prayers and thoughts, their thoughts and prayers to the victims, uh, whereas uh, liberals or people at least left of center, especially also people running for president or people serving in Congress, uh, tend to say it's about time. We did something about this. Uh, this can't go on. We can't let this become routine. Uh, there have been uh, a thousand or so mass shootings since Newtown, and Congress hasn't done anything. Um, and so those are two different styles of responding, and obviously they are full of content. Uh, but also um, there's sort of the question of, well, I mean, there's been a certain amount of sort of, I, I don't know, comparison of those two styles in a way that's uh, perhaps meant to be unflattering to the thoughts and prayers people. We'll talk about that. That's why it's called prayer shaming, obviously. A little bit later, Fear of the Quotidian, uh, also linked to the San Bernardino shootings, uh, a piece in the Times where they talked to, they got responses from 5,000 people uh, about how nervous they are about being in public, how sometimes they're even changing their behaviors, never seeing a movie in a movie theater, that kind of thing. Uh, in our second segment, Calendar Girls, the uh, Pirelli calendar, which is famous for supermodels, has traded them in for women of a certain age and sometimes women, women of a certain body fat count. Uh, we'll tell you more about that. And then lastly, it's linked both to body fat count and to anxiety, uh, is the race to, to create um, nudity-free locker rooms, or at least locker rooms for men in which they can change without being seen by other men. This is, for some reason, also... Uh, for some reason, about men um, as opposed to everybody. So uh, all of that's on the plate. We're going to start with uh, this notion of prayer shaming. So and since Irene's only had about 40 minutes to prepare for the show, James, I'll start with you. I, I know you do have some pretty strong thoughts about this notion that, that prayers and thoughts uh, are the way to go. Well, I, th I think it goes to, to me about assumptions and also what prayer really means. I mean, I was thinking about that on the way in, um, that, you know, if somebody says, if something's happened to me and somebody says, uh, oh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll say a prayer for you or something like that, that's something that, okay, that's something that they're saying from their point of view and that uh, I'm a non-theist, so it's, but it's a kind thought. It's a, it's, a, it's a thought that they are concerned for you and that they're showing that concern. But I think it's very different when it enters the political realm and it becomes something that is an assumption that this is how you should respond to things. And I think in particular, like uh, the assumption, for example, when it becomes a direct assumption that is more aggressive, that, well, everybody prays. Well, no, they don't. And not everybody has that sense of interpretation of life. And uh, it's not something that 
uh, some that for me, for example, I don't see it as something that I seek out an unseen force to support me. I seek out other human beings. I seek their sympathy. I offer my sympathy to them. But I think in a situation as we're dealing with right now where many people have been killed, that there is a reason for this, that there is a huge number of guns around and there's a very volatile population willing to use them in ways that kill people. And so to just say under those circumstances, well, uh, you know, we send our prayers and thoughts to the victims, I don't think that's enough. I think that that's politicizing what prayer is. Prayer to me is something, if somebody believes in a supreme being, then they uh, they can pray and they see it as an intensely personal thing and if they want to share it with others who share that. But when it becomes broader than that and makes the assumption that I am actually thinking along those same lines, I think that's a presumption which is not acceptable. And I think that also when it becomes something that is a political manipulation essentially – which is to take the heat off the idea that you actually, as a member of Congress or as a presidential candidate, that you might actually think about something to do about this, that's that's a different thing. And I, uh, one last thing, I mean, if you think about what the nature of guns are, guns are limited uh, in, in sort of people's thought that this is about the Second Amendment. But let's suppose we issued, I don't know, flamethrowers to every member of the population. You know, let's have 400 million flamethrowers in the country. It's reasonable to think that at some point some of those flamethrowers are going to be used to burn people's homes down because they can, because they've got the weapons. And so I think that we have to have that conversation about whether it makes sense for the public health, and we can't even study that at the moment. And so to hide behind the idea of prayers and thoughts, I think, is incredible hypocrisy. Right. So, Irene, you know, if you or I or James want to tweet out our thoughts and prayers or in some other way issue them, um, that's sort of de minimis. Nobody really cares one way or another whether, whether we do that. Our, our immediate friends may want to know if we have anything else to say about that. It becomes more important when it's done by people who theoretically bear the burden of public policy, bear the burden of maybe responding to this in some kind of concrete terms. Right. I absolutely agree that um, prayers alone aren't enough. But I was thinking when James was talking that I, I wonder um, how you feel. I mean, I think part of prayer shaming has to do with who the person is that's making the prayer. I mean, when Obama says, uh, and, I, and our prayers go to the, to the families, do you have a different reaction? Well, I think that in that case, I take it as like the, an individual saying to me, oh, I'll say a prayer for you. I think that many people, the majority of people, do pray and they believe in God. And but, so but Obama's doing it from his position He's doing it from president. his position as as president, but I think that it's a very fine line to walk. Actually, but I is think, it? Uh, well, so I'm curious about is it the implication? Is it the prayer, or is it the fact that prayers alone, which I absolutely agree with you, you know, prayers alone are not going to solve the problem at all. Well, but, right, but in, in a purely sort of cynical political sense, it's something he has to do. I mean, if he didn't do it, he'd be roundly criticized by loud wailing from presidential so, candidates and members of Congress who'd say that he didn't care. But just, the members of Congress would say that they have to do it too. Well, just to pencil in one thought, I, President Obama, Obama has at least on one occasion said, prayers alone are not going to fix this situation. Right, that's he, right. He, he is yeah. spe yeah. specifically talking about that. So he's, okay. I mean, he's kind of, and you know, Chris Murphy 
created yeah. kind of a stir this week. He said uh, something to the effect that um, your thoughts should be about something you, constructive you can do to fix this, uh, and your prayers should be for forgiveness if you don't do anything about it. Um, that was a tweet. Which um, meaning it, that it's your job to do this. Right. That you're in Congress. You're a politician. It's, you have the power to make these laws be beneficial to the, to the safety of the population of the country, and, and you're not doing it. Yeah, his, his press I, I saw a clip of his press conference after the vote yesterday where they weren't going to I mean he was so emotional it was yes. so I was really glad that he was my senator I think we actually have I something saw uh, I saw uh, Betsy I'm going to ask for the clip I also could somebody flip the computer over there I you can't see the computer screen right now uh, Kate Russian also has just arrived all Yay. kinds of things are happening <laughs> here but I think I'm correct that we have a little bit of Chris Murphy available right now Listen, I know they're important, and I know they're important to San Bernardino, but right now these thoughts and prayers and sympathies have become a, a, a mask for an action, and mm-hmm. they are wholly insufficient. Uh, listen, maybe I shouldn't tweet in anger, but I'm angry that we're not doing anything to try to stop this. So there you go, tweeting in anger. So the one thing that we'd hate to do, at least I would sort of hate to do, is throw the prayer out with the bathwater, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we don't, because we know that Martin Luther King, that Gandhi, that uh, when Kate gets ready to, to be in front of the microphone, you've got a great African proverb about that. Yeah, when you pray, move your feet. Um, and so there's, you know, there is that sort of notion that, that prayer has, ha, has created a kind of fuel for certain people, not for everybody, but it creates a kind of rocket fuel for, for people who do want justice and, and know that it will be costly and difficult to pursue it. Uh, for some people, it's, it, it's sort of a power bar, power bar. So we wouldn't want to take that out of there. No, I, I, I would is power bar. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that prayer is something that in itself is benign. I mean, it's like if, okay. if you're a believer in uh, a supreme being and, and that drives you to take care of the world and do good things for the world, that's a, that's a good thing, and that's not something, you know, and if, if prayer is a part of that, that's fine. It's when the prayer is, it, it becomes in some ways a sort of an excuse, something to hide behind, or even a weapon that somehow people who don't believe or people who don't think that prayer is the answer are somehow lesser than those who do. And then it becomes something different. Or also thinking that prayer alone is going to do anything, right. you know, well, to, that's, to help well, yeah. of course, some people do think it does. Some people I know, do, some people <laughs> which is right, fine. But, but but you have to acknowledge that there. Are, I think that it's only reasonable to acknowledge that. Okay, so X percentage of people believe that prayer does do something, but you also have to acknowledge the fact that you're also in a nation where there are plenty of people who don't particularly believe that, who might see that prayer is benign in some ways, but it also can be used as a as a shield to hide behind and say, oh, well, you know, we've done it now, but we haven't done our job. This is the this is the root. That's why I understand how Chris Murphy was so angry. I mean, I found that very visceral, too, See, listening to him speak. What made me a little nervous about this, and I totally get what's being said here, and I think, you know, and I think there's a lot of validity to it. But, Kate, you know, um, one thing that's always kind of bothered me a little bit in the past, actually, this goes back, I can take this all the way back to 1979, I think. I was listening to a debate uh, that I was covering in this uh, Connecticut General Assembly. I won't bore you with the details, but uh, what was happening was that the conservatives uh, were saying, well, God wants this. God wants it to be this way. And the liberals were saying, we can't talk about God here. It's separation of church and state. And and I, I, I wound up talking to, of all people, Joe Lieberman saying, you know, it might be a kind of a mistake to completely give up the religious high ground on everything. You know, that you don't you don't necessarily want to be the group of people who writes that off because it's very powerful to a lot of people and, and it's it's full of morality and and 
for a lot of people. Uh, and, you know, it just might be a mistake to sort of be the party that, that turns its back. And the, when I saw Murphy's tweets and I saw the article about prayer shaming, one thing I thought is we've already got people who can manufacture a war on Christmas. You know what's going to happen now. There's going to be people on the right saying there's a war on prayer. They don't want us to pray. And that actually has happened in the last 24 hours. Anyway. Uh, what yeah, you it has. I, I, I've seen that too where uh, people online – are saying that uh, people who are praying are being attacked by atheists. And, you know, that's, I don't think that's what it is at all. I, I guess I have uh, two responses to this prayer-shaming debate. One is that um, I understand also where Chris Murphy is coming from because people can use this automatic, or my prayers are with you, the way some people use the uh, American flag uh, pin lapel, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as a easy symbol, and then everybody has to follow along. Uh, My other response to this debate was, oh, my God, the victims aren't even uh, laid to rest yet. Do we have to be tweeting in anger uh, right at this moment? Uh, At the same time, I understand that uh, I'm sure Chris Murphy and others feel like, well, you got to hit back. You Mm -hmm. just can't. Um, kind of like lay down in front of my prayers or with you that you've got to speak up because and speak it's a, out. it's a manifestation of um, of anguish too. You know, it's not only anger. You know, it's it's like his way of expressing anguish. That's how I read it. Well, also I think there's a, you know you hit on something, Kate, about the speed with which this is happening. You know, and the tweeted the tweet sphere and all the rest of it. Everything has to happen immediately, and I think that. Uh, certainly Chris Murphy is among those people who feel that they have to move quickly to sort of command the universe at that particular moment. I think we're very immature as a society yet in dealing with this technology in the sense that, uh, you know, you can look at a page and see 5,000 comments appear within minutes on something that somebody says. And some of those comments are incredibly insulting and, 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 and really sort of, you know, filled with anger, really destructive to the conversation, and the conversation rapidly can descend into a name-calling contest. And it's one of the things that we aren't dealing with well at the moment, that there is no time to consider. If you think about it, when you first have something that really hits you and makes you angry, you're likely in some ways to have a sort of righteous response as you perceive it. But also a few minutes' thought might make you think, well, how am I going to respond to this? And we almost don't have time to think, how am I going to respond to it? People are jumping onto their phones and their computers immediately with statements that really don't particularly illuminate what's going on. Let me just sort of say one thing about that, too, which is right. even as we speak right now, reporters have been uh, granted access in some bizarre fashion to the what appears to be the apartment of the alleged uh, shooters in San Bernardino, and they've been walking around kind of rifling through stuff. And, um, and I looked at that and I thought, well, there's a fog of war problem here. I'm not going to bring it up on the nose, and I'm not going to bring it up on the nose because I don't understand what's going on, and the panel won't know what's going on. But I, I actually got tweets and emails in the last 30 minutes 
minutes before we went on the air saying, I hope you're going to talk about this. Mm. And I thought, well, no, we're not because we don't know what's happening. <laughs> and, and we haven't thought about it either. God right. forbid anybody should think for a couple of hours, right. you know, uh, about all this. But there's a lot of pressure to, you know, to do things at that pace. And also, uh, and a part of the problem is that we don't have the feeling of, all right, well, that was his first response. But now that he's thought about it, he's going to say something else. It's almost like we don't have that. That step doesn't seem to exist. You know, so once you tweet something out, you're 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 you know you're marked by that tweet forever. Right. Um, uh, because of calls coming in here, I want to just grab a couple calls and then maybe swing over also to the uh, sort of fear and trembling in quotidian spaces uh, part of this. Here's Ron in Nogatuck. Hi, Ron. Hi. Um, one phrase has been sticking out to me all week um, after this, or not phrase, I should say, um, excerpt from the Bible. It's a letter of St. James, a uh, second letter of St. James, I think. It's, you know, the famous one, faith without works is dead. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's lots of, you know, different things you can pull from the Bible and use to your advantage and whatnot, but I just couldn't help but think about that. And the other thing I want to say about prayer is what's kind of the great irony I find about prayer is that it's pretty explicitly stated in Scripture, in the Bible, that you're really not supposed to be demonstrating prayer all the time. It's right. just become a facet of our political, you know, reaction to most things. And obviously, I don't think it's bad, but yeah, there is a certain element of, oh, we need to express, you know, the, the, the our feelings and our prayers, but then like, as, yeah, I mean, I There's do... A, yeah, I, it's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Pious exhibitionism uh, is its own kind of problem, and Jesus is pretty clear uh, about uh, not liking it. Uh, here's Bruce in Berlin. Uh, yes, um, I, I thought it interesting that that the the occurrence in in um, California, in all the interviews, the word religion really never appeared, and it rarely does in so many of these uh, occurrences that are motivated by religious fervor. Uh, that includes nine eleven. In fact, it includes the Crusades of the 11th century. True, although, I mean, first of all, we don't really know what motivated this thing. Yeah, there's still a fog of war problem. I don't know. I'm not even really interested. I find that argument not, not that interesting because, you know, there's the Dalai Lama, who, by the way, does say about problems like this after Paris, he said, this is a problem human beings created, now you're expecting God to fix it, um, which is sort of you know, what we're talking about right now. But, I mean, Martin Luther King and Gandhi, and these are all very religious people. I don't think religion itself is the problem. It's what people do with it. I, I want to hear from the panel a little bit on this other uh, thing. The New York Times kind of uh, opened the floodgates. Uh, it asked uh, people to uh, to talk about whether they have uh, unusual levels of fear now after Paris, after San Bernardino, after all of the things that preceded all of that, the Colorado shootings uh, last week. Uh, what do people? How do people feel out in public spaces? And it turns out people are spooked. Uh, Wendy Malloy of Tampa, Florida, uh, said she she spoke for many. She now worried about being caught in an attack on a daily basis, just doing what anyone does. When my son gets out of the car in the morning and walks into his high school, when I drop him at his part-time job at the supermarket, when we go to the movies, concerts, and festivals, when I walk into my office, it's at a constant grinding anxiety. It gets louder every day. There was one man who said he doesn't go to, unfortunately for James, he doesn't go to movies and theaters anymore. He just doesn't want to be in a public space. He says, the idea that it can't happen here is gone. Um, I have to say that I have noticed this kind of miasma, you know, and I've even caught myself a couple of times in in the years since Newtown sitting somewhere thinking, how would I get out of here, you know, if something like that happened? I mean, I, I certainly don't let it paralyze me, but I'm, I'm just wondering, what, Kate, what, how do you react to that? You know, my daily fear driving 
<laughs> dare I say, driving yes. while black, uh, walking on the airline trail and realizing that my um, Otterbox cell phone case is black and that someone on the trail might think I have a gun and do something to me in that situation far outweighs my fear of just living my daily life and going to the movies and going to concerts. Go ahead, yeah. No, I was saying I think that's a good, a really good point. I mean, I, I, I think that um, you know, um, I, I think as you go about your daily life, there are any number of things. If you thought logically, like if, I mean, none of these people who were interviewed, I bet they drove their cars all day. For example, they're much more likely to be killed in a, a, a traffic accident of some kind or injured in a traffic accident than they are to be victims in a in a mass shooting. But I think that the, these event-type things, a mass shooting or a big disaster or something like that, is kind of like um, it's when there's an air, air disaster. Um, air travel is extremely safe, but when one disaster happens, the fear quotient rises spectacularly. And I think that we're sort of wired to be um, you know, to think about things uh, at that moment because it's focused that fear. But I can't see that. Uh, I mean, for me, uh, uh, it's it's something that um, you know um, is is it, it's there. But it certainly doesn't limit what I do every day. And it's really interesting about um, things that lie in the background. My husband is Jamaican American, and um, this thing of driving while black <laughs> is really it's real. You know, when you see a police officer, you think differently. Um, it's it's something that is really uh, it, it's there, and you have to be aware of it. But the question is, does it drive you from day to day? And I uh, no, it doesn't. Although Irene, well, uh, yeah, let me let me throw one more thing in here that you can sort of cook it up with what you're about to say. Because I think the other thing that I'm noticing now, and I've seen it a lot in various uh, places, particularly see it a lot on social media. There's also the kind of, this kind of formless dread that goes along with this, because what they're talking about is completely right. Look, if you start evaluating your, the chances that things are going to happen to you, well, actually, of course, the line of people who die in car accidents and the line of people die, who die in gunfire in America, those lines have been going in different directions for a number of years. And we're sort of in the neighborhood of crossing one another. So it used to be that you could say it's much more dangerous to drive to New York City, which I'm going to do tomorrow morning, than it is to worry about gun violence. But in fact, gun violence is kind of catching up with cars. But, you know, I think also people don't always think numerically. They think, do I feel safe or do I feel scared? And in ranging from, you know, being afraid of the kind of rhetoric you hear coming out of Donald Trump some days to, uh, to the, all of the things that have happened uh, over the last 18 to 24 months, in, in, in terms of police interacting with people of color, to the mass shootings, to Paris. To, I mean, some of the, sometimes these things have kind of a cumulative effect on people. They just feel a lot less safe on this given day than on another. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I agree with that. Um, but, but one thing that it makes me think about, though, is the way that we grow up. A lot of you know, white Americans in particular, white middle-class Americans, grow up feeling like, well, in our country, we're safe. You know, maybe in those other countries there's those problems, but not ours because ours is safe. You know, the government's going to take care of us and we're going to be fine. And in a way, what these incidents do is they remind us that we're that we're not as safe as, we're, you know, nobody is completely safe anywhere, you know. And so 
in in a lot of places that that anxiety is 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 an integral part of daily life a lot of places in the world you know and so in a way it connects us it makes us understand other parts of the world maybe a little bit better to say you know yeah. wow i could actually get shot if i walked into this yeah. restaurant you know and so there's not not that that's healthy you know i i, I wouldn't say that's healthy but i think it's um it's 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 noteworthy that in s- that we're we're less you know we 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 have to understand or we have to confront the the fact that you know there's not it's not you know of course everybody wants to be safe everybody would like to be safe all the time you know we wish everybody wishes they could be safe everybody in the world you know mm-hmm. but nobody can and right. so what are we going to do about that or 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 where what's the next step after that you know there's a letter from a woman uh, in the new york times today uh, who lives in jordan with her family and she's moving back to the united states and she actually said you know it feels more randomized over there right now i feel like in jordan i kind of know you know i'm wondering whether my family's right. safer here or there um, but I think, James, back to your point, I think the, the, par- the problem with this is people don't make good decisions when they're afraid. Right. That's true. And I think that this is something that um, you, 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 it, it enters into the political calculus now extremely quickly because of social media. And so um, it, it's absolutely true that, I mean, if you think, for example, of the effect that um, every time there's a, a random uh, attack or there's a, there's a shooting incident of this magnitude, the sales of guns goes up enormously. I mean, this is like spectacularly the, the issuance of licenses and the purchase of guns goes up. So, you know, it, it, there isn't a rational thought process to that. Because the, the, the statistics are very clear about that, that the more guns there are, if the guns are in the home, they get used on the people by the people who live in the house. Certainly this rise in, uh, in gun purchases does not make me feel safer. No. It makes me feel less safe to think that yeah. any random person in a car that I pass may have a gun or uh, anyone in a store may have a gun doesn't make me feel more safe. At all, but the gun manufacturers, I think, as James was alluding to, and there was a piece in the Times about this, right? They they say these things are great for us. People do. I mean, we we go into overproduction when these things happen because people want more guns. Uh, doesn't make any sense to me either. Uh, we got a quick call from uh, John from Woodstock. Then we got to grab a break here. Hi, John. You're on the air. Hi, guys. Um, so I I kind of had the opposite reaction to, uh, you know, the whole fear of, of what can happen to us. For years, I've been thinking about bringing my kids down to Times Square for New Year's Eve. And honestly, over the past couple of days and all that's happened, it's kind of really focused me that, yeah, this is the year I need to do it. Because I don't want them developing a mindset where they have to be scared all the time. I want, I want them to know that if you're smart and if you're careful and you keep your eyes open, that, that you are safe. And the you know, the, the odds are astronomical that something's really going to happen. But even if you do want to do something that's a little more risky, that there's still ways to do that. And, you know, you don't have to carry a gun, and you don't have to have armed folks around you. Um, so I think it's really important to me anyway to, to do that. I don't feel like I'm putting them in harm's way, but I think I, I'm trying to give them a lesson that – don't be afraid. You I think it's be a smart. Gr- I think Don't it's a great afraid. lesson. I really applaud that. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I just uh, my I took my son to Ground Zero on every anniversary of 9/11 for the first three or four years, kind of with the same idea in mind. Uh, all right, so we'll uh, take a break. We'll come back. We've got other slightly happier things to talk about after this.
All right, we're back. Uh, Betsy Kaplan's on the board today because Wolfie has got uh, some kind of horrible cold or respiratory thing. There seems to be something going around. Teresa Kramer was supposed to be with us. She's got it too. But we have James Hanley from Trinity Cine Studio, poet Kate Russian, and Professor Irene Papoulis all with us today on the nose. We're going to switch gears here. And so uh, not that this was really something, a product that I was particularly aware of, but apparently the Pirelli calendar is a thing. Um, and it's uh, it's often features the likes of Naomi Campbell, Penelope Cruz, Kate Moss, Cindy Crawford. You see the pattern developing here. But this year, the renowned photographer Annie Leibovitz decided that she was going to photograph a, a different kind of woman. Uh, and it's still going to be a woman, uh, but it's uh, Serena Williams. Uh, it's Yao Chen, the first Chinese goodwill ambassador for the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. Uh, it's uh, Selma director Anna DuVernay. Um, it's Fran Leibovitz. It's uh, Yoko Ono, Kathleen Kennedy, uh, people like that, and probably most notably because, of course, we're all about Amy Schumer all the time. Uh, it's Amy Schumer, who you may have seen the photograph is picked, uh, depicted in high heels and underpants, but nothing else. Uh, she's using her hands to cover her breasts, and, but she's sort of letting her her stomach and her little rolls of fat kind of um, just roll out there uh, while she holds a cup of coffee. It's, kind of, it's, a, it's a remarkable picture, actually. But... Uh, you know, uh, Irene, we've seen this kind of thing before. It's there in the Dove ads. It's there these these attempts that to sort of overthrow conventional uh, ideas about beauty. I'm sort of almost amazed that we still have have to do stuff like that. But I, do you see anything new in in any of that? Yeah. Well, by the way, most of the women you mentioned are not in their underwear. So no, yeah, we should say that. Yeah, Fran Leibowitz yeah. is not in her underwear. That would be a different. That would be yeah. way too much. <laughs> way too much. Catherine Kennedy? No, I don't yeah. think so. Um, <laughs> But um, I, yeah, I mean, with the Dove ads, I kind of felt like there was still, it still perpetuated the split. You know, there's like the the sexy woman and then these other women can be attractive too, you know. But with Amy Schumer kind of crosses that, you know. And so I I think there's something about her. I mean, I I saw an interview with her where she said, you know, well, I'm packing 165 pounds and I I don't have trouble getting dates, you know. Mm -hmm. And, um, And you believe it, you know, that she definitely, you know, she's you know, sexy, she's like the sexiness that she has is um, great, I think. And so I think it, it so it feels a little different than the dove things like you too can be, you know, considered pretty kind of a kind of a vibe. Right. It's like it's she really is undercurrent in those things. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And there's a there's a there's a just a blatant sexuality to her that's that I think is kind of delightful. Well, this, that's an interesting point, and I hadn't really thought about it that way. But Kate, uh, she's kind of suggesting that in the, on this calendar, there's Amy, and then there's everybody else. I mean, most mostly everybody else is clothed or semi-clothed. Well, there's Serena, and there's Serena, Serena and I know Kate wants to talk about Serena. So, so talk. Well, you know, I was uh, part of the New Words Bookstore Collective in, up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, for ten years. And I'm used to work looking at photographs of smart, sexy, mature women. So for me personally, it was not such a leap or a shift. But I did go back and look at uh, the previous generations of the uh, Pirelli calendars. And um, I have to say that the photo of Serena nude at the top, mm-hmm. even though her breasts were not showing and she has fierce, serious muscles. Superhero muscles. Superhero muscles was, to me, a throwback to the Pirelli calendars of previous times, which had uh, African women models, you know, bare-chested, covered with maybe a bit of jewelry or some necklaces. 
And um, I thought it was unfortunate. And I know that Serena may have chosen it, the picture. Serena may love the picture. But I thought, well, how big a shift is that particular representation of an African-American woman in the Pirelli calendar with the Pirelli products. Uh, uh, yeah. What are the Pirelli products, by the way? Tires. tires. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, like next time you're buying tires, remember that. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. it is sort of hard to figure out exactly what connection we're supposed to make. I mean, I sort of get sexy babes and tires. It's hard to, for me to sort of see what the connection is. I, the- I, I think it's just the name. It's just getting the name out there because they're feeling eclipsed by Michelin or whoever, and so it's getting the name out there. But I totally agree about Serena Williams. You know, it's like the objectifying. Um, uh, it's, it's like the objectifying of the 1950s in a way. It has a sort of hint of that. But one, the one thing I was struck by with that calendar, well, there are two things. One is I, I'm so tired of this always just being about women, mm-hmm. you know, like like get over it. You know, don't if, if you're going to have all women on this calendar, uh, I mean, Leibovitz, uh, uh, OK, that's fine. But she takes pictures of men, too. And so, you know, it, it seems to me objectifying in itself by just being pictures of women in a commercial calendar that is, is designed to aggrandize a company. I, whether this is some sort of, you know, probably a parsing by the company that men make the tire decisions, perhaps, I don't know. Which, but, but would you have liked to see, you know, so if she wants to sort of do something different, would you have wanted to see naked men or half-naked no, men? No, no. Just as an example, I, I actually uh, sent a message uh, early on when Colin sent the first link out to that of a calendar for the uh, um, uh, the Nashville Grizzlies, which is a, a, a um, all-men. No, actually, I think there's one woman on the team, actually, uh, maybe. Anyway, it's a calendar that they did uh, uh, that's taken in the locker room. And it's not sexual. It's, it's suggestive, certainly. But it's pictures of men of all sizes, including some really big men, some very very plump men, some very skinny men, all different kinds of bodies, you know. And it's a very sort of casually, uh, you know, exciting statement of life and, you know, really sort of showing something different. And uh, the Pirelli calendar is really so finely studied. And there were two exceptions to the finely studied poses and the clothing that was being worn and the overlay that um, Annie Leibovitz always puts on a picture. I think that um, uh, the the two exceptions were Serena Williams, uh, which, uh, you know, I agree with you, Kate, about what you said about her. In the case of um, Amy Schumer, her very pose somehow seems to manage to get away with poking fun at the process. Mm -hmm. She's not looking at the camera. She's actually dressed in a way that looks like it actually seriously looks like she just got caught that way. Mm-hmm. It's like she's poking fun at the process. With a the sort of paper cup is, of coffee also. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it, well, I just one little uh, contextual thing that I didn't know that I'm getting from Betsy. And this is kind of interesting, too. So um, uh, apparently the next time you're at an auto body shop or a car repair shop or someplace like that, look around near the cash <laughs> register because this, these Pirelli calendars, that's sort of where they hang, all right, in places where you go <laughs> oh, and yeah. get your car fixed. Oh, yeah. So I, I, whether or not – it would be interesting to see whether Yoko Ono, you know, is like are those guys? So they they are they hang in these all male. Yeah, right. Who's that? They're you know, <laughs> or, or mostly male uh, car repair environments. Yeah, the first time I saw these calendars was in my in my uncle's basement shop. My uncle is a truck uh, driver. Oh, the so ones with the, like Rita Hayworth or, or yeah, Rita. you know, they're connected. Also, I think this tradition is connected to the uh, World War II pinup Pin calendars up as well. Yeah. You know, uh, but talking about Amy Schumer and Serena, 
I'm less offended or not offended by Amy Schumer because I thought the Amy Schumer pose and the humor and the poking fun was a continuation and extension of her professional life as a comedian and a comedic actress. Whereas with Serena, Serena's our great tennis star. So yeah. why does she need to be right. nude at the top? Well, yeah. I think I can make a quick segue uh, from this to our final topic today, which is uh, a piece that st- started out with a piece in the Times. Uh, there's been other things written about it since then, uh, about the idea that um, there's a real market for nudity-free locker rooms and gyms, especially for men. Men really don't want to be naked or dress around each other. There's a generation gap about this, uh, that guys in their 50s, 60s, uh, they just don't even think twice about it. But uh, millennials and people kind of pegged around there, young men pegged around there. Well, showering after gym class in high school became virtually extinct in the 1990s, so maybe you can start it around there. Uh, But now, yes, uh, as one uh, uh, gym company owner says, it's funny, they're more socially open with everything, Facebook, social media, yet more private in their personal space. They don't want to, men, young men, don't want to have to be naked in front of each other in uh, gyms. Irene and I go to the same gym, although we obviously don't use the same locker room. But this is sort of news to me that it's a thing, that it's an issue uh, for a generation. Yeah, that's news to me too. I find it very surprising. Well, it's, I mean, I'm the mother of a, you know, 19-year-old, almost 20, and um, it's, so it's not as surprising to me. And I, I was always struck by people that would say, who had daughters, who would say to me when he was growing up, like, oh, you're lucky because, you know, there's no image issues, you know. And that's not true at all for, I mean, it's probably was never true. I mean, men have always thought about their image in some way, but I, I just think it's just, it's so interesting that the, the, instead of, for the women's movement, instead of sort of helping women feel more comfortable with, with our bodies, in, instead of doing that, we just, what, what has evolved is that now men get to be uncomfortable too, just like us, if they don't have the right kind of muscles or they don't have the right kind of whatever, you know, I mean, I, I just, I think it's a function of that. I think we know what the whatever is. <laughs> <laughs> I think that those things are, you know, you know, my cynical side thought that, oh, well, you know, designers and builders of gyms are like it's time they had a makeover movement in the industry, right? So it's very expensive to remake locker rooms. And so this was an opportunity to sell lots of stuff. And to make it much more complicated, of course, so you couldn't have just one room. You'd have to have all these little cubicles and stuff like that. But uh, quite apart from that, it, it bespeaks to me this uh, a, a very deep thing about male insecurity that's sort of that, that's developed, I think, much more now. And I think that it's something that um, insecurity about appearance, insecurity about appearance, yeah. and also I think it's a sexual insecurity. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a sense uh, that there's a lot of men who I, I think younger men who haven't really dealt with that idea of uh, you know their own sexual security, and they the 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 point about it is that they haven't dealt with the idea that n- nakedness, your naked body, is not necessarily associated with a sexual connection. That it could be, but it's not necessarily so. And if you're really secure about it, then you don't worry. I mean, that's why I feel about uh, Amy Schumer going back to her. She's not insecure about her body. And so she's going to be real. She's going to show who she is. And and she makes comedy about it. And she's also secure in other ways that allow her to make humor about things that make people uncomfortable. You know, I'm also wondering, James, not to make you a spokesman for your entire uh, community, but I'm also wondering whether this is a real difference between straight men and gay men. Uh, 
uh, that gay men kind of have been about the body in various ways for a long Absolutely. time. And so yeah. the whole bear movement seems to be, let's be really comfortable about how we look if we look like this. Um, which, that, which was very liberating. I mean, this was an incredibly liberating moment because I think that many, uh, the, the vast majority of gay men felt imprisoned in the sense that they couldn't co- go to bathhouses, they couldn't go to, uh, to, to gyms and so on because their bodies didn't match the ideals that were in all the uh, magazines at the time. And that was very liberating to discover that. And I'm certainly sure that, you know, I mean, in, in uh, gay bathhouses and gyms, I mean, it would be totally bizarre to have sort of, you know, ways of concealing the body because uh, although there's a sexual element to it, there's also the, the, the nature of being open with each other, the symbolic nature of not having to hide your body, that you can actually feel secure that maybe, you know, your your particular body or your, or, or your sexual aspect is not what other people would expect. And so then you can feel free that you don't have to hide it from anyone and you don't need all of this equipment and this ridiculous business of sort of wriggling into your underwear with your towel on. I mean, where is that insecurity <laughs> coming from? So can, I, can you, I, get, you get the last word on this one? Yeah, you know, a I, I, couple of thoughts. I wonder if some of the generational shift has to do with the fact that we don't have millions of young men going into the military anymore. And I also wonder if the generational shift has to do with what I see as a greater focus on uh, 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 a greater focus on grooming and style and fashion that seems to be permeating the whole society but seems to be hitting kids younger and younger. Well, I, I guess I'll have the last word, which is that I also think there's a part of this is that it's about – uh, a generational – I mean it's sort of something that we talk about a lot and I know that there's a, lots of different ways of looking at it. But this kind of desire to have a safer space as opposed to dealing with your fears and insecurities. And so, I mean, you know, there's a case to be made anyway for like getting over it, you know, and as opposed to design a gym where I never have to deal with this. So uh, this might be a thing where you'd be better off in the long run if you sort of dealt with it and got to a level of the kind of comfort that, that maybe James is talking about uh, for one segment of the game community. Anyway, that means I get the last word. But uh, we'll come back with endorsements. I want to thank uh, Betsy Kaplan for keeping us on track today, Greg Hill for tweeting for us at WNPR, Colin, Amanda Gallagher, and Sarah Flaherty are our interns uh, today. Uh, we're going to be back on Monday with – I think we will talk Monday about the, what's happened here today in which reporters have been rummaging through the what appears to be the apartment of the alleged shooters uh, in the San Bernardino case. But uh, – by then, maybe we'll actually know something about it. Anyways, time for endorsements. Uh, Irene Papoulos, what have you? Got? Oh, actually, we'll let you go last because you're you're the least. Uh, you weren't necessarily ready for this. Okay. All right. So James Hanley. You go first. <laughs> well, the first thing I wanted to do at this time of year is encourage people east of the river and anybody else to support the Joshua's Trust, who have uh, who uh, take care of open spaces around uh, certainly around Mansfield and surrounding towns. 
And uh, I just feel it so personally because when we're talking about fear and all of these things, uh, you know, how you live your life from day to day, the properties that they take care of, these wonderful trails through the woods and incredibly beautiful places that they uh, that uh, this uh, organization has kept going. It's a great s organization to support, and it feels very personal to be able to walk there every day. And one other thing, <coughs> um, no matter what you've heard about it, um, Steve Jobs, the movie, is riveting. It has incredible performances. Um, Seth Rogen in particular, I think, is incredible, but um, Kate Winslet and Michael Fassbender, um, we're showing it at Cine Studio tonight and tomorrow. Um, it's really an amazing film, and it's an absolute mystery to me why it didn't get to play in the market for many, many weeks. Hmm. But an amazing film not to miss. All right, then. Uh, Kate, what do you got? All right, so last night I was at the uh, Connecticut Forum for the first time on a discussion of uh, race and racism, and I learned about the Connecticut Youth Forum, and there was a Bolton High School senior there named Lexi Frame who uh, addressed the audience. And um, you can find out more information about them at ctforum.org. It involves 35 high schools. I think that's a good thing. And also, I've got to give a shout-out to the Hartford Public Library and the Hartford History Center. One Book Hartford is coming up, If Beale Street Could Talk. Mm. And uh, people can find more information online and on Facebook about that. All right, Irene Papoulos, what have you got for um, us? I'm going to endorse the movie Trumbo. Um, Brian Cranston does a fantastic job, and if you look at it, especially I think it's interesting looking through the lens of the historical strains of fasc fascism that exist and still exist in our culture, it's very interesting and moving film. All right, um, it'll become as no surprise to people who heard Monday's show that I do want to endorse the movie Creed. Uh, I never thought I'd be this in love with a Rocky movie, but Michael B. Jordan is amazing. I'd forgotten until I was preparing for last night's uh, HBO event that he was Wallace on the wire when he was such a little guy, you know, and uh, he's just, he's become an amazing actor. Stallone is very interesting and at times borderline subtle uh, in the movie. It's just a great movie. I can't say enough about it. So I was also trying to think, and uh, good, I've got enough time that I can really do this. I was trying to think, okay, how could I sort of tie a few things here together? And I realized, uh, and we were talking about prayer at the beginning, uh, and I realized that it's the uh, birthday today of R Rainer Maria Rilke. He was born on December 4th, 1875. I've got a poet sitting right across from me. Uh, and of course, Boy, so much of his work is about either prayer or religious meditation or re religious ecstasy. So I've actually got time to read a, a bit from uh, the Duino elegies. This is from number nine. Praise the world to the angel. Leave the unsayable aside. Your exalted feelings do not move him. In the realm where he feels feelings, you are a beginner. Therefore, show him what is ordinary, what has been shaped from generation to generation, shaped by hand and eye. Tell him of things. He will stand in still in astonishment, the way you stood by the rope maker in Rome or beside the potter on the Nile. Show him how happy a thing can be, how innocent and ours, as even a lament takes clear form, becomes a thing, can die as a thing, while the music blessing it fades. So, and it kind of kind of relates to what we were saying before, too. It's sort of there's prayer and then there's the world, and you know, they. 
they don't always have to be totally estranged uh, from one another. But pick some Rilke over the weekend anyway. You know, it's like, it's a, that's what I endorse is picking up uh, a little Rilke over the weekend. We actually have an extra minute. Did you want to say anything on behalf of Noon Beaches? I can grant um, you that time. Yes. I used to live near a nude beach, and at first I was really scared, to, and I just thought, oh, God. This is I'm apropos of our this. locker room. Apropos of our locker room discussion. Uh, once I finally took the plunge and, um, you know, walked ar- began walking around naked on the beach, I realized how much delightful and fun it was and how nobody cares what you look like. So don't worry in the locker room. Just be yourself. <laughs> um, all right. I also want to say a couple of things. Uh, on Monday uh, on The Scramble, we, we will, I, I'm sure, address uh, what did happen today with the reporters uh, going through uh, the, the scene uh, where the uh, gunman uh, apparently lived. We've also got some interesting shows uh, coming ahead this week. Next week, I know you're maybe not going to be happy to hear this, but uh, we do have a pledge week. But uh, we are, So we're going to use that as an opportunity uh, to share with you a couple of shows from the past, uh, from the recent past that we really liked. We're going to kind of cut them, up, cut them up a little bit differently. One of them is about spies, and uh, one of them is about Dante's Inferno. And actually, the Dante show is, if you didn't hear it the first time, it really is pretty amazing. Uh, on Thursday, we're going to do a fresh show about Mad Magazine. Uh, I've had this longstanding theory that for many people of my generation, Mad Magazine was sort of the gateway into modern cynicism. <laughs> it's kind of like it was sort of the first time you found out, oh, really? All those things on TV aren't true? The things in advertisements aren't actually good? I just as a little boy, it had never occurred to me basically that during the Eisenhower and Kennedy eras, I was being so systematically lied to and to so find it out and to be laughing at the same time. So we'll uh, talk a little bit about the history of Mad Magazine, some of the great artists who worked there, and sort of the, even the fact that it, it still has a profile today. I'm not really sure who reads Mad Magazine anymore. Thanks so much to Irene Papoulos from Trinity College and to Kate Russian, the poet, and from Trinity Cine Studio, uh, James Hanley. We will be back with you on Monday. Talking, joking, talking about this and talking about that. And talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, getting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.